This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy all our sensory systems. and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like, what it feels like, and what it sounds like. Jacob Salzar, and Michelle Hyatt, who, among other things, are poets who write predominantly haiku and other forms of Japanese poetry. Jacob Salzar is the author of several books of poetry, including Echoes, which is a collection of linked verse poetry written with Michelle Hyatt. Jacob is also the editor of several poetry journals, including Yancey's Butterfly and half a rainbow. First off, because I really don't know anything about haiku or any of the other Japanese forms of poetry, or any of the forms of poetry, really, 
I would love to hear from both of you about what haiku is and what it is that you were so drawn to and that works for you with haiku and these other Japanese forms of poetry that you choose to write in. Okay. Do you want me to go first, Michelle? I'd love for you to go first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, basically, um, I'd like to start with a brief history because that kind of puts it into context on like the invention of haiku over time. And I'm not an expert historian, but I'd like to touch on just a few key things that are really interesting. But then I'd love to circle back to how Michelle and I met. So we'll weave that in. But um, basically the Kojiki, it's a record of ancient matters. It was completed in 712 AD. And this is the oldest known record of Japanese literature that we know of. So this text has a lot of Shinto religion texts in this book, also myths and legends and the history of the Imperial Court of Japan. But this book also includes Tonka and Waka. So Waka just means Japanese poetry, but Tonka later became kind of the foundation of Japanese poetry going forward. So Tonka are basically short songs. Um, or short verse. They are five lines and they have two parts. And so right from the beginning of the origins of Japanese poetry, we have the art of juxtaposition. So we have two different images or just two parts to the poem. And just that by itself creates a lot of space and sometimes dissonance and sometimes just interesting relationships. So usually the first three lines is one part and the last two lines is the second part of the Tonka. And then in circa 759, the Manyoshu collection of 10,000 leaves. This is the oldest known Japanese poetry anthology. And there's a lot of Tonka poems in this anthology. Um, for the first time, we also find the first attempt to write Tonka by two people. So here we're getting this the seed of collaborative poetry. And by the year 1127, so this is really ancient, ancient times in, in human terms, the word renga first appears. So haikai no renga, renga, and what is now known as renku, they're all names for Japanese linked verse, and they're always collaborative. The shortest form became tanrenga. So Tonka, when it's written by two people and there's a space, like a physical space between two parts of the poem, it's known as Tanrenga. And Michelle and I actually wrote some in our Echoes book. So Tan in Japanese just means short. So it's just short linked verse. The first three lines are written by one person mm -hmm. and then the last two lines are written by the second person. But Renga and Renku can be very, very long. So <laughs> some of them can be 100 plus verses long. And they're sometimes called chains. And so I read an article that Buddhist monks would write Renga to lay down their worldly attachments so they could let them go to discover enlightenment. So that's a very interesting concept to kind of contemplate, you know, the power of writing 
collaboratively, but also to let go of attachments. So that provides just a brief kind of <laughs> overview of some of the Japanese forms, but then there's just a few other things that lead up to haiku. So Basho is the most well-known Japanese poet, but he was a renga master. So at his time, the word haiku hadn't been invented yet, but he wrote linked verse collaboratively. And also he wrote the first verses in renku, which are called hoku. And in anthologies, they had separate chapters just for hoku, which nowadays we would call them haiku, but he didn't, he didn't have that term yet. But Basho, he elevated linked verse with a lot of reverence for nature and a lot of compassion. So that's one reason why he's so famous is he's really elevated poetry to this, I would say, mature, like spiritual practice. And he actually had disciples. And so Basho was not just a haiku poet, but someone regarded as a spiritual teacher. Um, he also wrote haibun, which is prose with haiku. So that's another, <laughs> there's a lot of Japanese poetry forms. But um, the haibun, he has a uh, very long, um, the journey to the deep north. It's basically like a, a travel diary of his long journey. And it's all haiku and prose of what he saw. But there's a few quotes by Basho that I'd like to share. He says, follow nature and return to nature. And he also says, life is a journey and the journey itself is home. And I really like that quote too. <laughs> but his famous poem is, old pond, a frog jumps in the sound of water. And then years later, there's a poet named Shiki who lived 1867 to 1902. And he is credited with inventing the word haiku. So he saw the linked verse poems and he said, well, each verse is kind of its own poem. Let it stand on its own. So he really inspired people to write haiku just for their own sake. Basically with haiku, they usually have a juxtaposition between two images. I see haiku are like portals into other worlds. They can have a balance of concrete imagery and mystery. They can be soaked in metaphor and in different meanings. They allow the reader to enter the moment and experience it in their own way. I really like that part of haiku. Um, they contain hidden messages oftentimes and Haiku poets, they notice the really small things in life, the things that go unnoticed and are taken for granted. Um, so it can help us just be more grateful. Reading and writing haiku, in addition to inspiring gratitude, they can also help us rediscover our connection with nature and just with Mother Earth. And some haiku can be like paintings um, very visual. Um, they can also really shed light on problems and issues we face in, in modern society. I like that part of haiku too. It's, it's not limited to just nature poems, but haiku can transform ordinary things into something extraordinary or something sacred. So they can allow us to see life as spiritual or divine. But also they allow us to embrace different cultures. And so I really like the um, 
international appeal of haiku because there's so many people writing haiku across the whole world in many different countries. And so you get a glimpse into their culture and you get a glimpse of different perspectives. So <laughs> that's the long and the short of, of why I really love haiku. That's great. Thank you. Michelle, I'd yeah. love to hear from you. Okay, well, my experience and what inspires me about haiku, I would say one of the biggest things is the silence, that there's a lingering silence that I find in haiku poetry, and it's consistent in haiku poetry that I have read, like flat across the board, and I noticed that pattern for myself. And I think for others too, from people that I've spoken to, there is a silence, there's a pause in between even sometimes each line, like if you're reading three line haiku, I find there's this beautiful moment you know, even at the end of reading a, a tiny poem where I just linger in a, like, silent, reflective place of mystery. A lot of times, sometimes I don't even know what it is that I'm feeling. I'm just kind of responding with my senses. I feel a lot through my body. So... If I hear certain words, sometimes that resonates. Even the sound of the word, I'll have a like a physical sensation or a, a, a resonating inside my body. Sometimes my I feel my heart start to <laughs> palpitate. You know, it starts to beat faster, or I'll feel this kind of like this groan thing wanting to happen inside my belly. It's a really mysterious, deep inspiration I guess how it inspires me and how my body responds I appreciate that because I navigate my world much of the time I navigate my world through my senses from what I feel inside not just you know physical feel but inside my spiritual body and I find haiku is a beautiful vessel to spark those feelings and those sensations and those reflections or my thoughts. And I appreciate the simplicity sometimes. It's, haiku is kind of a beautiful marriage of something that's pretty complex, but at the same time, it's very simple. And I find that so beautiful. I love that, you know, that mystery of not understanding sometimes if that makes sense because I know with you know from what I know in my brain I want to land on something concrete and you know an image of some kind of a description in the haiku but then I love the space that allows me to just go to some place that is otherworldly and, you know, and then I don't want to get into that, but then, you know, we could get into the subject of abstract haiku. So, you know, that's a whole different style of writing, which I also appreciate, but I won't go down that little trail at this moment. But I just want to say how there 
is that beauty and serenity that I love that haiku kind of draws out to appreciate the beauty and serenity in the common things that you see around you in everyday occurrences, in objects, in nature and in the landscape and appreciate the things that are simple and imperfect and the things that are impermanent. I see this old fence in the back of my yard. It's this beautiful old rusted chain link fence. That's the image that pops up into my mind right now when I'm speaking. Mm. And I sit outside in my yard every day in the morning. I do my tea meditation and I just sometimes find myself in the timeless space of just staring and really drawn to this old sunken in rusted chain link fence it's all crooked it's gnarly it's just so old and it's you know rusting away and yet i find there's a peace that i feel and i find it actually quite beautiful and see it slowly getting taken back nature is slowly taking back this metal and i actually am drawn to that more than my neighbor actually has put up his own fence and it's new and it's fresh you can smell the you know the fresh wood it's painted it's very pretty but it just doesn't appeal to me the same way it doesn't touch my senses the way that this old decrepit looking <laughs> fence does in my backyard you know what does this have to do with haiku these are the things that we can write about in haiku you know this old sunken fence and put it into a tiny poem a sketch of life an experience in a very brief moment in time that's very fleeting and it passes but the silence that lingers after we read a poem about, you know, an old rusted sunken fence while I sit in the yard and I'm drinking my tea. The silence that I'm left with after reading a haiku maybe about something like that, it actually could move me to tears. And I mm. have been moved to tears regularly. Ask Jacob. We <laughs> to each other all the time. And I'll just start crying. <laughs> Because mm. it touches a part of my soul like no other type of poetry. And I don't want to, you know, say, oh, it's better than this. This, I, you know, I, I, all writing when it's coming from a true and honest and, you know, vulnerable place, I can feel that. I, I was mentioning about that quote from Ernest Hemingway. And when I first started writing haiku, because I'd actually never written haiku before until I joined Haiku Nook back in 2014. Anyway, I'd done some journaling and, you know, some other types of just writing poetry, like just hack job poetry writing, and, and but always have been writing in my journals my whole life. But this quote from Ernest Hemingway really helped me when I started to delve into the style of writing genre of haiku and... He said, the writer's job is to tell the truth. All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. 
And I mean, even just hearing myself say that, like I got, I have tears in my eyes right now, just, just hearing those mm. words. It's just such a, it's such a moving thing. It's such a powerful, vulnerable thing to write mm. haiku for me. It's, it's such a, such an honest approach to writing and sharing and it's very powerful. That's a real kind of roundabout answer to why I appreciate haiku. But if mm. I were to put it in and speak my truest words, that's it. I find I don't often remember, and this is no disrespect at all, and I, I do this with books too, with authors, but I'm bad with names. When I meet people, I, I teach yoga, so I have students in my yoga class, and oh, it's just one of the most embarrassing things. I always have to ask, you know, not not always, but often, I have to ask, what's your name again? You know, <laughs> I don't know names, but I remember how they make me feel. So with poetry, majority of the time i don't remember the author's names and that is no disrespect but i remember how the poem made me feel and you know maya angelou she's one of my writing heroes she said something like people will forget what you said people will forget what you did but people will never forget how you made them feel and Haiku has impacted me in some of the deepest ways with, you know, inspiration, with healing, especially. And it's because of what I felt, how the words made me feel, how the poet made me feel. And I just find that just so beautiful. Well, the two of you have really opened my eyes and opened up this whole new world of, of haiku and other Japanese forms of poetry. And I've been having that experience myself reading your poetry. And, mm. and I'm just going to use the term haiku to refer to all of it because I don't know enough to distinguish between them. So my experience of haiku so far is it has a, a rhythm to it and a very deceptive kind of simplicity and has this embodied sense of being like a portal that connects different worlds. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's really magical and very mysterious how words can do that because there are these tropes that um, the truth cannot be told in words that that you can't use words to express mm. the truth. However, with haiku, because of its deep simplicity and the way it, it embodies silence and word simultaneously, um, mm. has this amazing ability to bridge those two seemingly disparate realms. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, mm. I, love, I love the portal. You said something about it's a portal to different worlds or to a different world. I love mm. that. I love that, you know, if I'm writing a poem, if I'm writing a haiku and I share it, you know, in my community or with somebody, 
most of the things that I write come from my own personal experience. Like it's an actual, like, like shiki, you know, it's a sketch of life. It's something that I've experienced. It's something that happened to me in real time. And it inspired me to create this tiny poem. And this is my experience and I write it and I share it. And I love how, you know, we mentioned Tonio, the, the portal to a different world. How I see that too is when I share that and, you know, you read it or whoever reads it can have an entirely different experience. Like the interpretation that they take away from that poem can be just completely different, no less, you know, inspiring or powerful, but it's such an interesting ripple that moves out from haiku poetry and like magical and mysterious like use those words too like those are perfect that, that that's my language like I, I love I totally connect with that and so it's like it is it's like a portal to a different world I I enter my world this is my world and then somebody else reads you know what I've written and they've walked through a, yet another door into another world and then even in that other world other doors open up and it's simple, but it's very, it's very vast. You used the term tiny poem, and that triggered something for me. And like, it's a tiny poem, but it has such a, a huge interdimensional connective capacity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like a prime example of where less is more. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking now is probably a really, really good time to start reading some of your haiku. Okay, well, that's a, a good idea. And then maybe later we could read a few of our Echoes poems. Remember, when I use the term haiku, I'm referring to all of it. So oh, okay. <laughs> when I invite you to read haiku, I'm really just asking you to read some of your poetry. Oh, okay. Well, I do like the idea of um, Michelle and I reading our solo haiku first, because it, it's kind of a nice way to introduce the examples. And then um, the link and shift method, which I would say it's more than just a method, it's just the spirit of collaborative poetry in Japanese poetry. So yeah, then we could read some renge and, and linked verse maybe after. That would be that would be great. And of course we'll talk more about linked poetry in, in general when we get to that point. Because your book Echoes is quite literally my first introduction to linked poetry. I didn't even know that oh. such a thing existed before. That's oh, okay. So I would not be surprised if many of my listeners are equally uh, inexperienced, <laughs> to put it in that sort of Jimi Hendrix way of speaking of it. <laughs> okay. Right, sure. I would give Michelle the honors to start. Do you want to read a few of your haiku? Sure. Um, okay, I have a few that I can read. Uh, Gentle snowfall. My father's hand reaching for mine. No destination. I walk into the forest. I just want to give gratitude. Those were published in uh, two journals 
back in June 2020, the first one, The Gentle Snowfall, was in Modern Haiku, and the other one was in the Frog Pond Haiku Journal. So just, I was very grateful that they got published. And also, at any point while you're reading, you can reflect upon. Mm, okay, okay. Right, right. So uh, the first one, Gentle Snowfall, my father's hand reaching for mine. I wrote that in honor of my dad. He passed away in 2001, but a lot of my haiku is written about him and in honor of him and my relationship with him. I was very close to my dad, so that I had written in honor of him. And his hands were very big. He worked with his hands. He, he wasn't a large man. He was kind of short, but he had... I remember his hands were big and strong, and but when I was little and we'd go for walks or if I'd sit on his knee, I'd always reach for his hand because I always felt safe because his hands were so big, but they were so gentle. And so that first haiku was written with his spirit in mind. And the second one, uh, no destination. I walk into the forest. That was just written in honor of my, up to that point, my journey. I had kind of a cathartic experience a number of years before and a long kind of a process towards healing and and recovery of, you know, myself. And it came by being out in creation and spending time in forests and just walking like nowhere really I just no destination I just go out and walk in a forest and I would be out there for a few hours just walking and it was just kind of my way of returning to myself so that came from that part of my journey uh so much makeup hiding her face dark side of the moon I really like that. And there was another haiku or tiny poem that had Dark Side of the Moon at the end of it. Mm, yeah, Jacob does too. I love writing about the moon. A lot of poems carry the energy of the moon. You know, it's it's different, I guess, for other people. But for me, most of the time, if I'm writing about the moon, it's because I'm drawing on you know, the feminine energies or the sacred feminine, I write a lot from that space. And this haiku in particular that I just read, that's a very special one for me, just because the background of that is I submitted it to the International Women's Haiku Festival in uh, 2018, and it was accepted and featured. And the woman, her name is Jennifer, she gave a lovely commentary on it and her commentary meant a lot to me because the things she said about it like she got it you know she got where i was going for which was you know there's a couple of different things like she took a couple of things from it but where i was coming from was you know the beauty industry and the desperation of women to hang on to physical beauty yet you know it's a mask to hide 
sometimes behind, sometimes shame. Sometimes, you know, the darker side of it could be, you know, violence or abuse. And uh, that poem was where that came out from, like the beauty industry and struggling to hold on to something that is, you know, like this desperation that is behind it. And it's kind of maybe a little more of a a darker place that it came from. But nevertheless, that's, that's what I wrote. And I really appreciated that. That kind of got recognized for the Women's Haiku Festival. That meant a lot to me. Um, You've probably read it in the Echoes book too. I like to write a lot about Indigenous history. I live in a part of northeastern Ontario. It's a higher population of Indigenous people. I live right next to a reservation and I'm very interested in Indigenous culture and the wisdom teachings of the Indigenous people and feel for the story that they have in my country and and I write haiku a lot as a reflection as a an honoring and in support of their story and their history so I would like to read a few of those haiku right now and and I think that will be it for me for the moment For the moment, yeah, yeah. So these haiku are not published at all. These are just haiku that I've written in honor of the indigenous people in my country and comes from a place of uh, just the stories that have come out, the exposure now with what's happened, not just with the residential schools, but with the children that were removed, forcefully removed. And now the newest news, which is the discovery of all the unmarked graves at the residential school. So a lot of these poems, so there, there's, a, there's a heaviness to it, but um, these, are, these are the haiku. Empty school, a child's moccasin buried in dust. Blowing in the wind, a torn flag, and the elder's braid. At unmarked graves, a whiff of smoldering sweetgrass. Leather moccasins, all the red beads fade to gray. Buffalo tracks, in a dream, the earth still trembling. Broken door of an empty schoolhouse, echoes in the wind. A grandmother chants prayers over a tobacco offering. Faint rhythm, pulsing in blood, the deer's sacrifice. She whispers a prayer in Cree. It feels like the most appropriate way of honoring those poems is to give it a space of silence to sink in. 
Yes. Those of us who have some awareness of that history mm. and, and have been moved by that. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, I read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee mm. right around the time when it first came out. Mm -hmm. And that was an incredibly powerful experience, very heartbreaking and devastating. Mm. Yes. And I think probably around the same time, I was also reading stories of the Holocaust. So mm -hmm. parallels, mm -hmm. dark parallels in, in our human history. For sure. Mm -hmm. And your poetry, your poems, your tiny poems brought about an embodied experience mm. or an experience that we could step through as in through the portal. We could step into that embodied experience mm. in a way. Mm. Mm. So Jacob, your turn. <laughs> <laughs> and, <That's> I, very... <laughs> and to begin, you you sent an email right right before we started, with a really simple and yet equally profound, and and also very thematic of a lot of the poetry that both of you have written. That is, between the known and the unknown, morning rain. Mm -hmm. You have such a good voice, Tonio. I think you should read all of my haiku. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate the vote of confidence, but <laughs> but uh, I like hearing poetry out of the mouth of the creator or the or the, the original channel. Okay. Well, I appreciate your feedback on that poem. Um, Maybe you oh, could begin oh. by by talking about that experience because I. For me, there's a very visceral experience that I have of that. I mean, it's more than just a visceral. It's, it's, it's one of those paradoxical, magical, and mysterious visceral experiences with it. But, but I'd love mm. for you to talk about that. Because I'm, okay. I'm, I'm guessing that you wrote that since you sent it to me. I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, between the known and the unknown morning rain, it's... The first um, intent behind it was emotional. And so it's really about how little we know and how much is unknown and how humbling that is just as a human being to just kind of put myself in my own place and just realize how mysterious life is and how little I know. Um, I write a lot about rain because I live in the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, it rains a lot here. I love the sound of rain. I love the atmosphere. I love even its scent. I love the way it looks. So I've gotten to know rain pretty well because I've lived here for a long time. <laughs> but I also associate rain with a lot of emotion, a lot of different emotions. So I, I was kind of feeling into that space that haiku really gives us of mystery, really not knowing and actually really embracing that and being okay with that. Because a lot of our society, I feel like they value knowledge and, and knowing and it's very intellectual, I feel like. But um, on the flip side, I think it's a little too heavy. And uh, if we had more 
empathy, more empaths um, that can really hear someone and have emotional intelligence. I honestly feel like that would be a step in the right direction as far as like, quote unquote, evolution, maybe. <laughs> but that's just my two cents. So basically, yeah, it came from emotion and um, just how much is unknown. And there's a lot of cyclical references to water the element of water whether it's rain or tides like there's evening tides and there's morning rain or mist or things like that where a paradoxical experience is punctuated by an element either of water or perhaps some other element although water seems to be a dominant theme for you, Jacob, just as yes. the ancestors seem to be a recurring theme in your poetry, Michelle. Mm. Mm. So, Jacob, continue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it's hard because, um, yeah, following Michelle's beautiful haiku, it's hard to end moving haiku. And also, I just wanted to say one thing about Michelle's poems that she read. I really appreciate her vulnerability and talking about a subject that's very hard to talk about. I mean, that's not easy to write about, let alone speak about such dark things. And so um, it takes a lot of courage to do that. So I just want to recognize Michelle for sharing those. Thanks. Yeah. I also have a interest in admiration for indigenous people and it's found its way into my poetry but in sometimes a little more subtle ways here's just a few haiku dream catcher a new hole in the spider's web that haiku actually came from my grandfather he has a dream catcher over his bed in indigenous cultures, a lot of times the dream catcher is a powerful symbol. The web captures the bad dreams and then the center is empty. And so it allows them to escape. And yeah, there's a lot of symbolism in dream catcher, but a new hole in the spider's web. I was actually going for more of a metaphor for the human mind, how we spin webs out of thoughts and then we seem to live in our own creation to an extent, it seems. So I, I kind of saw the spider in the spider's web as a metaphor for the human mind. But then a hole in the spider's web is kind of like a disturbance or you know something that flies in the face of your web or your world. It leaves a hole that allows light to shine through. So I was thinking about that. I was like, well, what's a way to describe like a disturbance that seems unexpected, but it's actually very healthy. <laughs> I don't know if you catch my drift there, but getting used to your own world, so to speak, like you get into a social conditioning, mental pattern, and then someone out of the left field gives you a different view. And the ability to embrace that, I think, is just really healthy. Mm -hmm. I definitely got that. The hole in the spider's web mm -hmm. is an escape from the trap of our own self-imposed stories. Mm -hmm. Right. And again, the great power of tiny poems, 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you made a good observation with writing about water. I do write a lot about water. Um, here's another one, and these are from my book, Mare Liberum, which is Latin for freedom of the seas. I've always been inspired by the ocean in particular. I grew up visiting grandparents on the Oregon coast and spent a lot of time there. Um, here's another haiku. High tide, the steep cliff lowers itself. Um, I love that one. <laughs> oh, thank you. Basically, I was thinking about how big the ego can get in certain people. And I was going for a metaphor of what that looks like when someone's like steps off their pedestal. <laughs> And they kind of, and they see a bigger picture, like you're not as big as you think you are. You know, you're, you're a part of something much larger than yourself, like the ocean. You know, I was hoping to maybe even edge on like the erosion of the sense of ego, like with a cliff eroding into the sea and how powerful the ocean is. Uh, there's just maybe one more haiku I can share. This one is published in Frog Pond. I'm grateful they accepted this one. How many become one? Sound of rain. Mm. Yeah, I remember reading that one. And again, using water as a way of bringing those two together. Mm -hmm. And how water does that naturally. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I could talk about water for days. <laughs> but yeah, you're absolutely right, Tonio. And it's interesting because biologically, we're mostly water, you know, and so I think sometimes we might forget that. And I also feel like, you know, my life is sort of like a river heading to the sea. And that actually brings to mind a, a quote from Mari Liberum that I could share too. Um, this links to the water theme. The river goes on roaring without knowing if it's day or night. It goes on without distraction and does not know of past or future or any measurement of time. The waves appear separate, but they are forever one with the vast ocean and its unfathomable depths. Just as each snowflake is different, yet made of the same substance. We are unique expressions of one life. May we recognize this so we can stop the violence, celebrate our differences, and dance in unison and synchronicity. My life is not my life, as the river of this life is only a silent song that will soon fade away into the wordless depths of a nameless sea. There are a few Tonka I could share. I remember uh, Michelle shared just a few Tonka. This one is published in the Ribbons Tonka Journal. Cracked pillars no longer stand between us, admitting all the times I've been wrong. I was actually thinking of my mother and reflecting on all the times I've been wrong and how by admitting that, I can be closer to my mother and love her more. 
And then there's this one from Mari LeBaron. Before I leave, I wrap you in a blanket and whisper, let go of all desire, sleep without fear this night. So I think that's all I'd like to share as far as haiku and a few tanka. Thank you for giving me and Michelle the space to read some of our poems. I really appreciate it. Mm. Well, that's what this show is for. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being willing to come on and share your, your work with us. Mm -hmm. So do you think now would be a good time to talk about linked poetry and then when you're ready to jump into reading some? together. Sure. Yeah. Let's see where to start. Where to start? Linked verse. My first experience with writing linked verse was because of Jacob. Actually, we were just chatting back and forth, you know, we were keeping in touch with emails, we would be sending each other our work and, you know, giving feedback and whatever. And, and I think Jacob had the idea to why don't you know why don't we try writing together and doing linked verse poetry and I thought okay what is that <laughs> was a, I was such a newbie and so we took a lot right Jacob like we took a lot of what we wrote out of John Carley's book right yeah uh, Renku yeah. Reckoner Renku Reckoner, yeah, and uh, that was like a major resource and teaching to understand, you know, he breaks it down what Renku is, the different forms of Renku, and the way he lays it out in his book was just very helpful. So we, we just started doing it. The way that I learn best is I... I just have to do it. I just have to jump in. I just have to dive in and do it. And maybe it's going to be messy. Maybe it's going to be just so confusing, but it's the best way for me to learn. I make a mess of it, but then, okay, I learn from that and I just keep working at it. So we just started writing linked verse back and forth. And I had such a neat experience doing that because it just felt right to me. Up until then, it had been all solo writing. And my experience writing it and my experience reading it from others was solo haiku, solo poetry, very powerful, very meaningful, was very instrumental, came into my life at a very timely place. And then I get introduced to linked verse and then I feel almost this like a, almost a completion like this. This just feels right, you know, to be writing with somebody else, there was like a, a bridge that was being built or um, going on an old ancient, like it's ancient bridge that hasn't been walked on in so long. And I really connected with collaborative writing artistically and just, you know, logistically, just it's great to get, you know, immediate feedback and we help each other and we work together on the poetry and I just found it really, really inspiring and how it just kind of connected dots for me beyond writing, that call and response energy and the reciprocity, you know, the giving, the sharing and how two voices come together and 
and I don't understand why I feel it this way even, so I can't explain it, but I can ex- I can explain what it makes me feel. And it's two voices coming together, creating a third voice. It's not even two voices, and then we make one voice out of the two. There's another voice. There's a third voice. So it's, you know, we each write our poetry, we join them together, and by joining them together, there's this whole other voice that gets put into the mixture it's like this interesting trinity of some kind that evolves and it just always has felt like I'm returning to something like I'm coming home to something like when I write I've I've even said that to Jacob like when we write together when I'm doing poetry with him linked verse specifically I feel like I'm coming home and it just feels right I love how like when I look at linked verse on the page, it sounds maybe a little weird, but I actually see like a totem pole and I think of a totem. And to me, a totem, there is no hierarchy on a totem pole. They each hold their place. There's like that social order on a totem pole the the animals usually it's animals you know that are represented and they are their own power but when they come together there's this fusion and there's a common nature there's a collective participation in the energy of the nature of this you know the animals that are represented on the line of this totem there's a Mm. sense of oneness and Mm. i actually feel that or see that when I see it on the written page like you know with with our book echoes I'll open it up and I'll see the you know the linked verse and at first I just see the verses the stanzas and I feel that all that energy that I just explained I I can envision that and I sense it even before I start reading the words there's this fusion that happens with linked verse poetry for me and that gets me very excited that inspires me that really moves me and you know you talk about going back again like what you'd mentioned tonio i just keep hearing the portal to a different world like again there's a there's another one there's another one that gets opened up with linked verse and you know a weaving together of the poetry that creates this beautiful harmony that's what link verse writing is for me i can hardly wait to hear the two of you read some but we'll get there pretty soon okay yeah (laughs) and i love that notion sort of like that the mathematical equation of one plus one equals three or Mm. or potentially way more Mm. yes that might have traditional mathematicians rolling in their graves. (laughs) I was never good in math in school. (laughs) Well, then this comes naturally for you. (laughs) Exactly. I really liked what Michelle said about the totem pole. I had never thought of that, Michelle, but that's a beautiful analogy because, like you said, just to echo what you said, how every part of the totem pole is equal and there's no hierarchy and there's so much beauty in that. And I guess more specifically in terms of linked verse, each verse stands on its own, 
but they're also connected in subtle or less obvious ways. And that's part of the beauty of the link and shift method in linked verse poetry. We have those subtle connections that are actually made not only by Michelle and I when we write together, but also for the reader. So the reader can, it's kind of like a puzzle in a way, or just like a, it's a mystery that the reader is invited to participate in. And so kind of speaking to what Michelle was saying about the third voice, there's deeper resonance in linked verse that really does conjure up a feeling of a third voice. I also feel like the reader themselves is another voice and they participate in the poem in their own way too. And there's one other quick note in terms of our Echoes book. A lot of our poems are Renge and Renge are actually not Japanese poetry forms. They were in invented by an American named Gary Gay in 1992. And the key difference is Renge have common themes that connects the verses, but they don't have to link and shift. And so I'll do the brief version of link and shift. Basically, the link part means the verses connect in less obvious ways. But then the shift is you bring in a new subject in that same verse. And so there's a very dynamic flow because we're working with Japanese linked verse poetry. It's always connecting and something new and then connecting and then something new. So it, it produces this or it creates this long story. But with Renge, it's a lot more loose. There's no rules aside from just having one or more themes. So Michelle and I had a lot of fun with experimental Renge with multiple themes. Like we had a theme of like Mother Earth and the Divine Feminine and spirituality. And then we had those as the themes for our Renge. And that kind of guides the poem, but also we linked and shift as well. So we had so much fun writing those together. Yes. Is it okay if we read a few? I would love for you to read a few and don't worry about length. Okay. Do you want to start with inheritance? Oh, sure. Sure. Okay. I'm ready. Okay. This one is called Inheritance. Whispers through the branches, my mother's voice. Catkins blowing in the breeze, an orb spider weaves her web. Grandma's blanket, I wrap myself in silence. In the ancient ways, you teach me to walk lightly. Stairs spiraling into darkness, the roots of my family tree. Buried bones, deep inside the earth, a faint vibration. Would either of you like to uh, talk about that? Hmm. I can say a few things. I really appreciate the connections that we made when we wrote this. Um, you know, the spider weaving her web and my grandma's blanket, because my grandma um, created a blanket for me. 
and how you know she wove her own threads. And so I love the different connections, but also um, I need to thank Clayton Beach. Um, under the Basho, he published this poem in their journal. And I think that has a, it has a powerful implication of respecting our elders. And I feel like that's often missing in Western culture. And it really bothers me because I feel like our elders are the ones that need to be most respected and sought for wisdom. So there's a kind of, I think our poem speaks to honoring not only our own grandparents, but our ancestors from many generations um, before we came. And there's a lot of reverence in that. And hopefully a kind of remembering of their wisdom that might not even really come in words, but it might come if enough of us listen deeply to their stories, both wordless and word stories. Mm. It's beautiful. So perhaps going beyond our own parents, because not everybody had good relationships with their parents or had parents who would be considered to be elders in the traditional sense. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because I've experienced that with my writing, because I write so much about, like you had said, my ancestral heritage, my mom and my dad. I am, you know, very grateful that I came from a pretty stable, solid, you know, home life and upbringing, supportive parents and, you know, very loving. And so a lot of my poetry, if I write about my family or my mom or my dad, of course, it's going to be, you know, a lot of gratitude and love. And that's my story. And, you know, those are my truest words. And I've shared that. And I remember sharing that one time in the haiku community, uh, sharing a poem. And I think it was on the theme of Mother's Day. And so we were all, you know, coming in our haiku on the theme of Mother's Day. And so I had written something and I can't remember what the poem was, sorry, but it was about my mom. And I know that it was honoring her. And, and you know, we give feedback in the community and, a gentleman, a lovely gentleman, another haiku poet, gave feedback and, you know, liked it and supported and was very honest. And, you know, I really respected his vulnerability and his courage because he just briefly touched on, you know, how that poem made him feel and how there arose negativity inside of him and, you know, hurt and pain because he did not have a loving relationship. In fact, he had, you know, the, some of the little things that he mentioned in his comments, it was a very dark relationship with his mother because of, you know, her issues and what happened in his childhood. And so it really resonated totally different level with him. Mm-hmm. And again, those are the stories, you know, that's the ripple effect of haiku and I thanked him I I, you know felt bad and apologized that he you know had to endure that kind of pain but you know he's he's still on his healing journey it's it's those ripples it's so many ripples that go out from writing so that poem that inheritance range it came it was a mixture of coming from you know personal 
from our grandparents and my parents, as well as the ancestors and like what Jacob said, the elderly, the elderly community. For me, it also came from honoring the elder community and the gifts and the wisdom that they have and how often they they are ignored and forgotten. But that's mm. what I appreciate about inheritance is that there's an acknowledging and an honoring that I think we we try to bring out with the words of that brain game. I think of it also in terms of even just DNA, you know, people you've you've never actually met, but they're still part of our collective ancestry. And, you know, buried bones deep inside the earth, the faint vibration. I thought that was just a very powerful ending, a faint vibration for me. It just gives me a hint of life after death when mm -hmm. I read that. And whatever form that might take, I don't know. But that's part of the beauty, too, is the mystery. But um, also, this a quick note about just our grandparents. It's interesting because my grandma passed away last year, but she's been appearing in my dreams. And I have this, I have this bond with my grandma, even though I actually didn't know her very well. I knew her silence more than her words because she didn't really talk very much especially towards the end of her life because she had dementia. But there is nevertheless a kind of, you can call it maybe some kind of spiritual connection. And I definitely love my grandma. And so it's just interesting how somewhere in my subconscious she's appearing in, in my dreams. And I have this feeling that she's still with us in spirit. So I like that feeling it's, it's, it's comforting because it's like even though i didn't know her very well and i didn't see her often i still feel close to her that's a beautiful connection to have yeah i'm very grateful um it's interesting tonio some of the connections i have with people are with people who don't like talking as much <laughs> like they talk some but i i connect more with people's presence and what goes unsaid just as much as their words and so um yeah it's an interesting how nonverbal communication you know how they say it's like over 80 percent of communication is nonverbal so i really appreciate face-to-face -face conversation when you get more of that in addition to the words it's fascinating <laughs> yeah since the pandemic i've had to really uh tune into another level of of that yeah definitely not alone for sure mm -hmm. um i would love to read at least one more renge mm -hmm. i think we talked about a drop of water yeah and um, this renge tonio the theme is just water a drop of water drum circle the reverberation of thunder Flash flood, gathering yesterday's plastic. Moonlit river, the flow of a conversation between strangers. Summer kiss, the waterfall's mist suspended in a breeze. Echoing in a tunnel, a drop of water. Dark rain never forgotten 
Hiroshima. Wow, a lot of elements in that one. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I love the water representation and this one. No pun intended, the flow. And your flow going from the kiss suspended in the mist to memory of Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. That's mm. quite a leap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, like that. I was linking with Jacob's previous echoing in a tunnel, a drop of water. We did this all through email. So when he, you know, emailed me his poem, and I, I remember reading it in the tunnel, um, I just saw darkness, and the water was dark. And then right away, I saw this dark cloud, the, the mushroom cloud, and then it all fell from there to write that last verse, dark rain, never forgotten, Hiroshima. And the drop. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a very powerful and scary yeah. image for sure. But it's something that needs to be remembered, too, as far as just human history and what's happened. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of other poetry forms that we could read, Tonio. I know Michelle and I have some haibun, which are also linked verse, but the only difference is there's like small paragraphs then followed by haiku. So we could read a few of those. And also we have like a call and response tanka. So they're like kind of similar to the linked verse, but you'll notice the difference in haibun because it, it's um, read almost like a short story. Okay. I look forward to hearing that. Okay. And then I'll have a request for you two to read. Okay. So you wanted to do haibun? That would be great. Okay. Did you want me to go first? Sure. Okay. I'll read a haibun that, again, just very grateful. It got published in Contemporary Haibun Online a couple of years ago, and I'll read this. It's called Timing. It's for Lynn. The snow arrived early this year. I walk out to my meditation corner in the beginning hours of morning. The snow and ice crunch beneath my feet with each step like a rude awakening, a kind of tough love gesture from the great mother that tells me, maybe I shouldn't have procrastinated in switching out my lawnmower for my snow shovels, which are currently lying up in the rafters of my shed. If only I'd listened to the howling north wind last week as he was proclaiming winter's approaching imminent birth. Gender reveal. We hold our breath for a color. As I sit and drink my tea, staring at the winter wonderland that now engulfs my world, my initial shock and inner resistance slowly begins to dissipate and in its place, I'm aware of the magic that arrives when the thermometer plummets to the minus double digits. Adjustments, a forest stroll in new boots. The news of my friend's sudden passing a couple weeks ago creeps back into the echoes of my mind. She loves snow and the outdoors. 
and she loved this time of year, decorating and crafting for the season. Her flair for interior decorating would rival any professional whose photos land in leading magazines. She was truly a goddess of domestic arts. Moving Shadow, her dream catcher in the window. Another echo breaks into this silent space as I hear her voice and take another drawn out sip of my tea, the steam rising like a ghost. If only I had known. I sit and stare at the blank spot against my house where my shovels usually stand. Unprepared for the sudden change of my world, I ask, why couldn't the snow have waited one more night? Time change, waking me up too late. So that's a combination of prose yes followed by a haiku exactly yeah and they can vary in length i've written you know jacob too we've both written you know haibun it's a little more condensed i guess basically you know a paragraph or just a few sentences and then you know you end it with a haiku but that one's a long one because that's got four sections Mm-hmm. I appreciate Haibun because it's storytelling too. I was raised by storytellers and I, I just really naturally lean into that. Haiku was a bit of a challenge for me when I first started writing because I had to learn how to condense my words and, you know, write my truest words in a tiny little bubble. <laughs> and when I discovered the style of Haibun, I just lit up like, oh! Freedom. (laughs) (laughs) But I have one example that's a little bit shorter. Mm -hmm. It's called Encounter. In the coffee shop, a homeless man is scribbling on a notepad, uttering syllables to himself. Another homeless man walks in, probably in his mid-50s. He says to the man scribbling, it's getting cold out there. About 10 feet away, my coworker sits comfortably with me as she places her hands around a warm cup of tea. So, where'd you grow up? Parallel worlds on a divided highway. Sound of traffic. That one was almost completely self-explanatory in, right. in its directness and simplicity. Right, yeah. It, it can tackle some really hard subjects, too, like homelessness. Uh, it's not easy to write about. Mm-hmm. I do have another example where the shift is a little more clear, if you want to hear one more. Okay. This one is called Origins. There were power plants here, coal power plants. 300 billion tons of carbon dioxide have been released into the pale blue sky, powering generations, creating an intermittent hum within over 10 million refrigerators, providing power for 2 billion computers, streams of electricity spread underground and above us, reaching into our laptops, charging over 4 billion cell phones. Billions of faces glow in artificial light, reading over 200 billion emails sent and received each day, 
creating a constant hum for over 1 billion TVs flashing in over 1 billion houses around the world, running comedy shows, documentaries, sports, movies, and breaking news, much less mental programming, powering over 13 million microwaves and over 1 million electric stoves and ranges, providing heat for home-cooked meals, not to mention our fancy electric heaters and fans and light bulbs. Now the coal power plant stands like an empty cage. Out of a block of concrete, rusted exhaust pipes reach into a pale orange sky. Forest light, the burial of my dreams. So basically for that one, the shift is a little more I guess a, a harder shift with burial of my dreams and forest light isn't really mentioned in the prose. But basically what I was going after is like the burial of my own personal dreams for something larger than myself, if that makes sense. Well, that last yeah. verse was very powerful. Oh, thanks. Mm-hmm. I took it in a slightly, or I felt it in a slightly different way, but it's still very, very powerful. and very much fitting with the section before it. Mm, there you go, Ryan. Thanks for the feedback. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a request for the two of you to read something. Sure. It's Remnants of a Dream from page 29 of Echoes. <laughs> okay, cool. Mm. Okay. In the gap between waking and sleeping, morning rain. An ethereal voice whispers, dreams of flying. Geese migration. I readjust the feathers in my pillow. A soft breeze. The quiet fluttering of rapid eye movement. Trotuk meditation. The flame burns into darkness. Twilight's last shadow, surrendering attachment to the light. The subject of dreams appears in a lot of our poetry. And it actually conjures up a question for you, Tonio, if you had a chance to watch the Waking Life movie. I did. Perhaps that's something we can touch on. That's a really um, one of my favorite movies, and it's very immersed in dreams, as you know. <laughs> well, since that last poem has a very strong connection to dreams and and the various uh, elements surrounding it, would either or both of you like to talk about the place of dreams in your poetry and also in your life, how they're connected? We don't necessarily have to go into the waking life dimension of it, unless you're inspired to. Right. Mm. Yeah, you're right. Dreams are woven (laughs) throughout a lot of our writing. There's a lot of, you know, it's a big theme. Um, The dream world has its own, you know, mystery. (laughs) It's a very deep, mysterious place. And if I'm writing from experiences, you know, Honestly, as well, when I write about my dad, a lot of the times I will write 
based on, like Jacob had mentioned about his grandmother visiting him in dreams, I get a lot of visitations in my night visions and experiencing, you know, being with my dad again. They're very real. They're very vivid. They're very powerful. They're very real. I don't have them a lot, but when I do, they're almost tangible. Like I can, it's like lucid dreaming, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm awake in my dream. And it often ends the same way. He will tell me he has to go now. And I'm always saying, no, don't. <laughs> like, no, don't. Stay a little longer. And, but he always has to. It's very, it's peaceful. But, and he's, you know, very, very at peace. But gentle. But he always ends with him saying he has to go now. And my writing, it spills out from that. When I write a lot about my dad, it, like, evokes memories when I wake up, I'm brought to more memories with him or sometimes mm. the dream itself, you know, but dreams are, that's a whole other, a whole other podcast. <laughs> 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 but Jacob, I know that you are really big on that too. Yeah, I jot down my dreams when I can remember them. And oftentimes when I wake up, I only remember, you know, pieces of the dream. But the main liberation that I find in dreams is the things that are trapped in my subconscious, you know, they come alive in the dream and are able to be released. And there's one interesting experience I had when I started meditation. I had a lot of nightmares, just really bad dreams. And I asked my meditation teacher about it. And she said, that's actually a, a good thing. She said, have more nightmares. <laughs> she said, it's a, it's a sign that you're getting to a deeper level in your subconscious and releasing trapped impressions. And um, what in Sanskrit would be called samskaras or mental impressions. And I found that it helped calm my nerves a little bit because I was a little bit uh, disturbed by these sudden nightmares. When I would first start meditation, I'd went to her class and I would fall asleep. <laughs> and I know Michelle has talked to me about this too in her yoga classes, you know, when they get so relaxed and they're just not used to meditation or yoga, they just fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And it's just a sign that the body needs that rest mm -hmm. and the brain needs that rest. So, yeah, I would fall asleep quite often. <laughs> but then I would have these nightmares and my teacher, I appreciate her telling me that. And I thought that was so fascinating. You know, did it come from a past life? And I have just like, it seems we all have some karma we're working through. And that's why, you know, we took on these bodies, you know, we're, we're working out our past karma. So I, I thought about that. And just the depth of the subconscious by itself is a whole nother podcast because <laughs> I have so many dreams recorded throughout the years. Some of them very vivid, some of them really intense, and some of them are really pleasant. You know, like the flying dreams and the you know anti-gravity ones are the best. I had this one dream where I just, I touched my foot on the street and I just like, I went so high into the sky. It was just this like bird's eye view and just floating and what an interesting experience that <laughs> something in our brains and our minds is able to create that <laughs> it's just it's one of those things that I, I never wrap my head around it but nevertheless it's an experience that can be beneficial if i remembered enough in the waking quote-unquote state because i do feel like this is another kind of dream but that by itself runs against the grains of 
what we've been told. So <laughs> this dream seems to go on a lot longer. But the sense of time, too, this is mentioned in the Waking Life movie, how our sense of time changes. You know how you'll you'll wake up and you'll go back to sleep and you'll have those really long dreams. But then you'll wake up and only like 10 minutes has passed. So it's very, the sense of time is interesting. But to connect all this with um, poetry, I actually have one poem I could read that relates to sleep that actually might bridge that gap. This one is a little bit longer, but it's just called Names. And it's in my very first book of poetry called The Last Days of Winter. Names. We don't have names in the beginning, but seem to be given them out of necessity to live in our separateness, some believing we couldn't live a day without them. It seems some forget the ocean does not know of ocean, nor does the city know of city, or of sounds we will never hear, the lost languages of an age I can't remember. We've paved new streets to name them, helping us turn when we know it's time. But they were all made without names, each going their own way, leading to unknown distances. While the words streets and distances will soon only be memories and sleep, waking again the next day at their own pace, gathering in empty spaces. I keep looking over the valley and cannot see where it begins. Do you remember, well, I remember when I was young, there were times when I would just say a word over and over and over and over again until all meaning or connection to the word completely disappeared and it no longer had any meaning. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've done that for many, many years, but... Mm. Isn't that an interesting experience? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, you're like not giving it any more power. Well, you're sort of short-circuiting its power yeah. by yeah. saying right. it over and over again. Yeah. Or yeah. that's just the effect that it has. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that actually reminds me of um, Byron Katie when sometimes she'll ask people, who would you be without that thought? Or she'll ask them, who would you be without your story? Mm -hmm. And I feel a very similar connection there. Like yeah, just a single word or a belief or a thought that you've just, you've gotten so conditioned and maybe attached to over the years, you don't even realize it until Byron Katie comes and knocks on your front door and she says, well, maybe is that thought true? You know, <laughs> so I love her work. She's, she's great. Yeah, me too. Again, very simple work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and very profound because there's so much that I know I can speak for myself that I've become so used to over the years. And it's only until when I question it, can I, like you said, like unplug that power source, so to speak, or yeah, diminish its power. Yeah. And also using most of our energy to fuel something that isn't even real. Mm -hmm. Like they say that even the truth out of the mouth of a liar is still a lie. 
which mm-hmm. I think basically, in a way, is saying anything you say is essentially a lie. Mm-hmm. Right. In relation to the direct experience of reality. Right. Right. Well, this is an interesting, like, maybe side note to that is poetry can be a kind of bridge between words and wordless realms or states of being. Um, And there's a lot of beauty in that because I feel like when I write poetry and read it, it's kind of like what Michelle was saying. It feels like a returning home or it's like a almost like a signpost to what we would call silence, which isn't really giving it any justice. <laughs> but when words start to fade away, you know, and that that's when I'll feel most at home. But uh, poetry can lead me into that state of being. And there's a lot of beauty in that for sure, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can close a gap. I know my experience has been a feeling of not feeling as separate. Mm. There's a joining, there's a bridge mm. that connects, whether you're writing collaborative or it's just, you know, a solo writer and then mm. reader, you know, out there somewhere. Do I even know sometimes, especially when you p- submit to a journal, you have no idea who's reading your work. Mm. Um, but there are bridges that are being built. The gap is closing a little more, which... For me, that makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and knowing you're not alone on that journey too, I feel like uh-huh. so many people who are writing and reading, we're all kind of in the same boat in different places. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we're kind of in the same boat as, as far as that. Um, I kind of feel like it's a, a deep urge inside of, I think many of us to decondition and maybe unlearn because we've learned so much and I think our minds have been conditioned to some degree and um, meditation or being in nature can feel like a a release from those conditionings and those attachments Mm -hmm. of what's been thrown on us since we were children. So it's not easy work, (laughs) but poetry can kind of help maybe navigate us through the mud of the subconscious and dig deeper to see what's underneath it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the portal. Right. Yeah. yeah. For sure. And back to dreams, you know, that's that's a very powerful portal. Yeah. You know, the whole subject of recurring dreams too, that's that's fascinating as well when it comes to the the subconscious mind um the psyche just to i've had recurring dreams since i was a little girl watch me have it tonight you know it's been like months so so watch me have this dream tonight but i (laughs) have this recurring dream where all my teeth fall out i have no control over it whatsoever it starts the same way i feel like the tooth is feeling wonky it's like and then my (laughs) touch it with my tongue and it's slightly loose and then I feel it start to loosen more and more and then the tooth beside it starts to get loose and then it's like a deck of cards you know following each other as they start to knock each other over my teeth are doing that like a little (laughs) deck of cards and then they start crumbling and then I'm now just not spitting out teeth I'm spitting out like sand it's turned to sand 
and I have had this dream since I was a little girl and it's an upsetting dream like it's not a fun dream I wake up and I'm I'm tracing my tongue over my teeth like okay no they're all still there because <laughs> it's very real feeling mm-hmm. in the dream and you know that's my recurring dream it's been I've, I've had it for decades it's just the strangest thing and then the other it's not a recurring dream but it's a common theme the Mm. dream of animals they speak to me in dreams like they'll appear and then they start speaking to me in a human voice and then they morph into another animal as well so one animal becomes two animals so i've had dreams where a wolf also turns into an owl i've had dreams where a chipmunk also turns into a great horned owl. I've had a bear start to move like a river. So that wasn't an animal, but they start to turn into water. So it, it's just, it's very interesting to me. And it's not a scary dream. It doesn't freak me out. I'm very comfortable in the dream. And when I wake up, I feel very peaceful. Um, I don't really go too, too deep, spend too much time into, you know, my own dream interpretation, unless it's very clear when I wake up. If it's not super clear, I just, you know, I journal it too. I write it down, just kind of shelf it. But I I just really feel a lot of the thread that moves through the dreams, the common thread is just the interconnectedness of all things. That's really all that I'm taking from that right now is, you Mm. know, the interconnection of all things, you know, the animate world around me and how closely we are all linked and join and not separate. Yeah, you know, a wolf is a deer. The wolf eats the deer. So the wolf is also the deer and then the deer becomes the wolf, you know, like it's just mm. all kind of, to me, it just, it's like a tapestry all woven together. Wow. That's a lovely relationship with the dream world. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I go out and then I see these animals in nature. You know, I mean, mm. I haven't seen a bear face to face. I don't really want to go seeking that out. But I, see, I usually see their bums. They go, as long as they're going in the opposite direction, that's okay. But, yeah. you know, I see, I see the owls and I see the chippy, the chipmunks and... I've seen coyotes in the distance. I've heard wolves in the distance. But, uh, you know, all the animals out, because I live pretty near the bush. And I appreciate those dreams because uh, I just feel it gives me greater sensitivity towards the wildlife and them as, you know, beings, seeing them as beings and feeling them as their own spirit and, you know, having their own consciousness and. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that could be a whole nother podcast too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but Antonio, um, we have some Tonka sequences that um, one of the sequences touches on dreams. So we could read a few of those if you want. Sure. Okay. Um, these are new in a book that Michelle and I are working on, so it's not published yet. But we're sort of looking to finish by the end of this year. Um, we start with this one, not wanting to break our silence, evening fog, through cracks in ice, the buds of yellow roses. Beyond the mist, signs of light, meeting halfway, I walk towards you across a frozen lake. Moonlight, 
in the overgrown cemetery, frozen shadows. How many thoughts have I buried? Beneath the ice, another world full of secrets. I journey between wakefulness and sleep. Yeah, I was thinking about that one with the dream conversation. Um, how interesting. I journey between wakefulness and sleep. You know how sometimes mm -hmm. you'll you'll wake up, but you're not fully awake? Mm -hmm. And you're kind of in limbo, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Like that's a very, I don't get into that state very often, but it's very interesting. And it seems more peaceful to most people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's an interesting state to be in. Yeah, I find sometimes that's my experience is that I, I have a momentary hovering and I'm aware that I am awake and I am just at sleep's, you know, doorstep. I'm just about to step in, but I'm not there yeah. yet. It's, it's a very momentary pause before I walk through that door. It's really, it, it is, it's very peaceful. I spend a fair amount of time in those in-between states. Like mm -hmm. in the morning in particular, I will, when I first wake up, I will stay in bed and go back in. Right. And I will spend as much time as I can or, or allow myself to. And sometimes I, it'll be like hours. Mm. Not necessarily mm -hmm. that I'm in a, a lucid state necessarily. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's very warm, yeah, very nourishing place to be. Mm, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's a mm. beautiful awareness, like a place of awareness to be like that. Yeah. And like the two of you, I, I love the dream world. Mm -hmm. I very much enjoy my dreams. And, mm -hmm. and I've also had a couple of recurring dreams that I've had most of my life but i as of fairly recently i have not had either of them recur again like one of them was finding myself completely naked in the middle of a wide city street oh, wow and, and desperately looking for some place to hide but right. completely unable to find anything wow <laughs> so vulnerable exactly so vulnerable That's exactly yeah. Yeah. That's good. That, that I think that that's a sign, Tonio, that um, you have a lot of courage and that you're not afraid to dive deep. I've noticed that because I love your show. And um, one thing I've noticed, you, you're not afraid to dive deep. And that's great. Yes. It's funny that you say that because I'm such a coward. I've <laughs> always been such a coward. When it, well, that's how I that's the story I, I tell myself about. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mm. Who would you be without that story? <laughs> I would be free. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be standing in the street naked. <laughs> I would be reveling in my nakedness. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and perhaps we would all revel in the pleasure of being free to be naked. Yeah. In right. the street. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And no longer concerned about our makeup or the yeah. dark side of the moon. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
Mm. Exactly. Mm. I actually have one more poem that mentions sleep if you want to hear this one. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, this one is also in my book, um, The Last Days of Winter. It's called What Happens? What happens when the busy noise of stressful lives slows to a steady pulse and becomes still? When the sounds of a city fade away as children sleep and the hollow walls of those ancient buildings begin to speak, their hidden voices carried in the hearts and minds of those who can listen. When the people start to live in this place where no words can follow and all language subsides even for a moment, to watch our words fall into their roots, into the ancient harbor, this empty page that carries them. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing I wanted to mention, Antonio, that I've noticed in your shows. You're a very good listener, and that's mm -hmm. not common in our society. I feel like a lot of conversation has a lot of noise, but you create space. And even earlier in our conversation today, I noticed when Michelle read one of her poems, you allowed space after to let it sink in when she was reading her poems for indigenous people. And um, that goes a long way, Tonio. I think we need a, a lot more of that for many different reasons. But yeah, I just wanted to recognize that and, and let you know that because that, that's a real gift. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I totally agree, I, especially us white people. I think that's, that's the only thing we have the right to say Mm. to keep our mouth shut in mm -hmm. in relation to the effects that we've had upon the world around us, particularly mm. when we're hearing the stories of other people who have suffered. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That brings to mind um, something Michelle told me. It was a while ago, but um, maybe you could tell the story, Michelle, of some of the healing circles you've been a part of with indigenous communities and that question you asked when you offered to help and what they said oh yeah yeah because i live in an area of northeastern ontario where there is you know a higher percentage of indigenous population and i have several friends who are anishinaabe from the Anishinaabe nation and um been very honored very grateful to have been invited to sit in some of their healing and sharing circles, specifically the sharing circles with people who were uh, affected by the, they call it the 60s scoop, where they came in, the government came in and took the Indigenous children away from their families and forced them into the residential schools. So a lot of those healing circles were for the families that were ripped apart from that tragedy. So my one friend, she uh, is of the Anishinaabek Nation and telling me her story um, before we went into the circle, I asked her, you know, what can, what can I do? What is it that I can do? What would you like me to do? Or what would you like us to do? Those of us that are non-Indigenous, 
to help you to be there and support for you. And she just said, we need you to listen to us. And for many people, that's the hardest thing to do, mm -hmm. especially when there's any sense of guilt or mm -hmm. responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I really appreciated that, you know, that we just want you to hear us. We want you to listen to our story. And when I went to one particular healing circle, um, it was very emotional, of course. And, you know, we sit in silence and I'm there as a silent witness, as a silent observer. I'm there with ears only. And I'm there to listen and, and catch, catch the story, catch their voice and hold it with support and, and um, respect. And that is it. And uh, it was very, it's one of the most powerful experiences probably that I might ever have in my life, actually, to sit there and hear their story and, um, you know, just be like standing on this part of the circle because they did, you know, I was welcomed in, I could sit with them. And at the end, when all the sharing was over, they open it up then for anybody to speak their voice. And, you know, then if you had questions or things to say, you can. And But, uh, you know, going back to what Jacob was saying about just the value and how important it is to just listen in that alone brings incredible healing. Mm -hmm. for people yeah i've noticed this even recently uh, i was actually yesterday i was part of a sharing circle through zoom and um the most beautiful part about it was we each took turns sharing and there's a moderator just asking questions but the only real rule was there's no judgments at all and there's just listening and the incredible power of that, because it's not even someone trying to interpret what's been said. It's just pure listening and respect and everybody takes a turn. And just the energy of that conversation was so healing because I feel like when we create space for just our true stories to be shared, it also helps us as the listeners because we're seeing someone be vulnerable and share their you know, truth, no matter how hard it is. And then that inspires us as the listeners to also be equally vulnerable and have the courage to really share what actually happened. And it's not easy. I mean, some people go through, you know, traumatic experiences, um, but just having the space to, to let it be released and heard and known, that goes a long way without any feedback yeah it was very powerful i'm looking forward to many more of the sharing circles mm -hmm. yeah i think all of us probably what we want most is to be truly seen and heard for who we are right and there seems to be very little space in our culture to express or to be who we truly are right 
-hmm. let alone be seen and heard for who we are. Yeah. One thing that your show has done for me personally too, Tonio, is one thing I've noticed is the sheer variety that you have has really, I think it opens a lot of people's minds to new perspectives and how like, helpful that is. Because just like what you're saying, it's not really encouraged in our culture. And so I think what your show is doing for a lot of people is it's um, sparking other conversations and it's opening up parts of our brains and minds that we might not have been exposed to or even heard of before. So just the the sheer amount of variety that you have is much appreciated. You know how some podcasts are very focused on just one thing? You know, it's like, oh, it's a podcast on public speaking, you know? <laughs> and it's just one thing and they're just like driving it home every time. But what I like about your show is I don't know what to expect. And it's important to at least for me to embrace um, different perspectives. I think it's very healthy. Well, you have really been listening in the broadest sense to have gotten that because that has quite literally been my objective is to present a broad perspective for those very reasons. And that you got that is very gratifying. So thank you. Oh, good. That's good. Well, you needed to hear the truth, so there it is. <laughs> there are some really profound quotes from the Waking Life movie I would love to touch on. And I'm so glad you had a chance to watch it, Tonio. I'm curious about like your takeaways from watching the film. Like, What did you get out of it and what were your first impressions? Because I, I think from my understanding, this is the first time that you got to see it. Yeah, it was the first time. Um... Well, considering that I've only seen it once, it took me a while to realize that he was essentially dreaming the entire time. Right. Mm. So I had mixed impressions because there was a lot of very different elements within the dream. There was a lot of philosophizing, like idle philosophizing that I found kind of tedious. And then there was some very deep stuff, which was wonderful. And it mm -hmm. went back and forth for a while. But then after a while, it started to become more clear that maybe this entire thing is a dream. Uh -huh. And there's references to the lucid dream, but he didn't seem to, if, if it was a lucid dream, he wasn't taking advantage of that directly, even though all the signs were pointing to the fact that he was in a lucid dream. So it made me wonder about Richard Linkletter and his experience of lucid dreams. Yeah, that's a great question. I would love to interview him. It'd be great to have him on your show, actually, because I, I think he'd be a, a fascinating guy to talk to. But that movie is, is so old at this point. <laughs> that's also yeah. true. I, I hope he's still around. <laughs> he probably is, but uh, yeah. <laughs> To talk about your creative babies that are now grown up. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What did you think about the um, the music and the visual quality of the film? I really like the visual quality. I like the way elements of the visuals were were shifting. Sometimes very subtly, and sometimes not so subtly. 
I like the quality of the fluidity of it. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting how they made it because they filmed it in Waking Life and then they had different artists draw over each frame of the film using computer software. And so that's why like in every scene you get a little bit of a different artistic like aesthetic or quality. It's just a little different. They use different colors and, and different styles of drawing. Um, but yeah, it gave that kind of lucid dream feel that he was going for. But overall, did you enjoy the film? Did you get a lot out of it? I enjoyed it. Cool. In terms of, did I get a lot out of it? I don't know, because I think the theme of the lucid dream was a bit incoherent in terms of, of the experience of a lucid dream, because it didn't match my sense of the experience of a lucid dream, because his lucid dream was actually becoming a nightmare. Right. And that that's almost a contradiction in terms of a lucid dream, unless you enter into a lucid dream and then get lost in it and it no longer it's no longer lucid. Right. That would the definition of a lucid dream is that you're aware that you're dreaming. And right. and that in a sense is it frees you. It's like the Byron Katie thing of recognizing that, oh, what would I be or who would I be without this story? Right. Mm -hmm. And he was still trapped inside of various stories. Right. Yeah. Which is, which is why I was, I was finding myself questioning, you know, Richard Linkletter's experience or conception of lucid dreams. Maybe he was just fascinated by dreams in general and was just exploring different aspects that he's experienced and maybe he hasn't really experienced lucid dreaming i i really don't know yeah no that's a good point for sure that was interesting at the very end i noticed the main character he floated up into the sky and disappears yeah and i kind of saw that as like oh individuality disappearing into something universal um i don't know but that gave me some hope that he woke up from the dream at the very end. Or maybe that was the ultimate expression of his lucid dream. Right, right. Yeah. That he, I don't know. That he had learned so much by staying present and listening in the lucid dream rather than acting or be becoming the agent in the dream, that he had learned enough to realize that that's what was most important. Mm, to let go know. of control, maybe. To let go of oneself completely. Right, right. And uh, allow oneself to dissolve into the uh, into the bright blue sky. You're right. I, I don't know. That that's just speculation after seeing it once. <laughs> right, right. No, for sure. Yeah, I'm curious about um, your main takeaways, Michelle, when you watched it for the first time. Was it kind of similar to Tonio's? Um, yeah, like it, I had to watch it a second time, like not right after, but I did have to watch it a second time. It wasn't until the end, near the end, where I started understanding, okay, this is a dream. Like he's not waking up from the dream. I mm. saw it more as it's in you know, different scenes singular scenes throughout the film pockets of 
scenes that really moved me and, you know, quotes that really um, impacted me and I really connected with a couple of them. Um, I'm trying to think. I haven't seen it for a while, but um, I love that sharing that holy moment scene that that really speaks to me. I've done that with friends. Uh, mm -hmm. We call it soul gazing and mm -hmm. some of my meditation classes and experiences and just with friends one on one where you just sit. I called it soul gazing, but in the movie it's they're sharing a holy moment where they just sit mm -hmm. and gaze into each other's eyes. Right. Remember that scene? And, there's mm -hmm. just, and they just hold each other in this sacred space of silence and gaze in to each other's eyes and you know feel into that space and take away what comes out of that and it's just it's a very powerful experience to have especially with someone you know I've done it with people that are close to me so I have you know very loving feelings towards these people and, and that's very comfortable i don't know what it would be like i've not done it in my yoga or meditation classes with the people that come because i just i'd have to ask them first if they were comfortable i wouldn't just say today we're going to do you know because some people <laughs> could really i speaking for myself too if i were just in a meditation class i don't know if i just want to dive into sharing a, a holy moment with somebody that i i don't know too well but then sometimes that can be easier for people you know it's like Telling a stranger your your darker secrets is sometimes easier than the people that are closest to you. So it, mm -hmm. I guess it's just it could be a personal thing. But I I took away from that scene. It was very moving for me. Something that I I know personally that I've experienced. It's very powerful. And mm -hmm. the other scene was when a woman. I don't even remember who it was. It was a woman and a man and they were rushing past each other and they were, one was going down the steps, another one was going up the steps and they just kind of said, Hey, how you doing? And yeah, good. And then they, and they stopped or one of them stopped and said, no, let's do that again. Mm -hmm. And they came back together and, you know, just, it was, it was about how we, I took from that, just how we do that, you know, in our day with strangers or you know people we're familiar with we just rush past each other and you know we're caught up in our own agenda we're caught up you know in our busyness and we've missed that pause where we can actually make a deeper connection mm. with somebody and come away from having maybe a spiritual experience that mm -hmm. changes us Mm -hmm. I appreciated that. Those are the two that, when I think about the movie right now, those are the two that they're on my mind screen. I'm seeing them play out in front of me. Mm. Those are my two favorite things, too. Mm, nice. And I actually learned a form of that, what you learned is soul gazing mm. many years ago. And we were trained how to do that. So, yeah, it, the set and setting is really important. And... Mm it's much easier to do it or to feel safe doing it with people that are really open to doing yeah. it and have, yeah. have been trained, so to speak, not so much trained how to do it, but trained to hold the space to be in the space. Yes. And that yeah. practice 
actually is based on Rumi's. Rumi apparently practiced that way back in the 11th century. I can see that. Mm -hmm. Just knowing some of Rumi's writings and, you know, just the essence that's in his writing. That makes sense. Yeah, and it's it's a beautiful, beautiful practice to do. It and, is. And the second one that you mentioned, I really like that too, where you bumped into somebody yeah. and then ran past them and then saying, wait a minute. Yeah. There's something there. Let's yeah. explore it rather than, oh, there's something there. Nah. Yeah. It's not kosher to go there in this culture. So I'm yeah. just going to move on. I'm going to stay separate and, yeah. and isolated because yeah. that's the way of our culture. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I appreciate it because that's a universal moment. Like We all experience that, whether we're aware of it or not. You know, There have been times where I am very aware that I have just brushed it off and that there's something that has tugged at my spirit, but I, I have this agenda. I have to be somewhere. Or I just want to keep going. You know, I'm, I'm plowing my way through here, and, but I'm very aware that there was this tug inside of me that no there's something there's something there it reminds me i i was raised for part of my adult life not raised i was an adult but i joined like a like a spiritual community going to church and you know meeting regularly with uh like a bible more of a bible-based community and so we read the bible a lot so the scripture verses some of them are still just kind of now like sewn into my my body like i just remember it a lot of it the old testament stories especially because i i really some of the stories were very interesting to me but you know that scene in that movie makes me think of the story in the old testament when moses is going up mount sinai he's going to meet his god and he's on mount sinai and the burning bush, because God appears to Moses, the story is God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And in the story, he's walking, and there's a burning bush off to the side. And he pauses, and he does like a double take, because he's walking, he's going to meet his God, and then he sees this bush, and he pauses, he does this double take, and then he says, I must turn aside and see this strange sight. So then he turns back and then he approaches the burning bush and then, you know, that's when God speaks to him. That's when he gets the Ten Commandments, you know, that whole story. Anyway, that story always moved me. That always fascinated me and spoke to me. And I think of that now talking about that scene in Waking Life and how in my journey, you know, my day-to-day encounters and just moving about in my you know world here like how many burning bushes do i walk past and i know i have and it's not i'm not getting down on myself it's not like that it's just you know it just makes me more aware it just makes me think okay you know let's like use that periphery because it's often in the periphery, those things, right? It's not like so much blatant in my face, obvious, because that would be easier, but it's yeah. subtle. Right. Learning to listen to that quiet voice of the soul. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we find that in haiku, too, as, as haiku poets. 
we're almost kind of tuned into noticing a lot of things that go unnoticed. And one thing that just came to mind was a well-known haiku poet from England. His name is Alan Summers. And um, this might bridge a, a gap into our experience with Haiku Nook, because that's how I met Michelle. Basically, it was like an online haiku forum. But um, with Alan Summers, he did a documentary on his life, like a, like a brief documentary. And it showed him he had a backpack, a notebook, and a pen. And that was it. And he just walked the city streets and he paused. Like people are always busy walking, you know, a lot of cars and everything. But he stops and he writes haiku. He observes, he, he listens, he sees what people walk past every day. And then he, he creates these beautiful haiku out of those moments. And those haiku also tell a story or a part of a story. And I just really appreciated his documentary and it just showed how patient he was. You know, the life around him is going 100 miles per hour. <laughs> but he actually took the time to literally just be completely still and write some haiku. So I just wanted to recognize Alan Summers. He's been such a great support for the haiku community. And one of the beautiful things about haiku is how it connects people. Speaking to what Michelle was talking about, and also portals into other worlds. But the haiku community is international. You know, there's haiku poets in so many countries. And with Haiku Nook, Google Plus used to be a social media platform. They took it away some years ago. But uh, when it was around, there was a Haiku Nook private forum just for writing haiku. It was founded by a man in the Philippines named Willie Bonkron. And I want to thank him specifically because he started that forum and he brought a lot of people together. And he still runs the group on Facebook, I think. I'm not on social media, but he still continues the group. And um, basically, one day, one of the poets who posted a lot of haiku, her name was Yanti Jum, we learned that she passed away. And it was very out of the blue. She died in her 30s. So it's very abrupt. But she was a real sweetheart, and a lot of people really cared a lot about her, and she was just a very sweet person. So um, we came up with this idea to uh, write an anthology dedicated to Yanti, and that gave birth to Yanti's Butterfly Haiku Anthology. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read just a few really brief quotes from my editor's note about the book. So I wrote, metamorphosis is a Greek word that means transformation or change in shape. From the beginning, our private haiku community resembled an egg full of potential. Given the right conditions through the sharing of haiku, we started to mature and formed a protective cocoon around us. This cocoon was shaped out of mutual kindness and respect and led to the formation of Yanti's butterfly. As we lost a loved one, Yanti Jem, she went through a metamorphosis of her own, and in the process, she transformed us as well. She embodied the spirit of simple kindness and respect. She was an integral part of our haiku community that could never be replaced. In honor of Yanti and her family, 20 poets from around the world have come together to create this haiku anthology. It is a celebration of her life and her haiku. It is also a celebration of our work in this genre and the power of haiku to connect people across countries, across boundaries, around the world.
It has been a great honor to serve as the managing editor for this anthology, as all proceeds from this book will be donated to Yanti's family and to two charities, The Hunger Project and Action Aid. Yanti's butterfly embodies a transformative power all its own. And then the poets from Yanti's butterfly, they came from the following countries, the Philippines, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Ukraine, Germany, Taiwan, Sri Lanka, South Africa, Persia, and Indonesia. So that was the first anthology that I got to edit and be a part of. And I love the community aspect of even the editing. There was a lot of feedback and I, I definitely didn't do it alone, but it was a very rewarding project to be a part of. And it also led eventually a few years later to another anthology called Half a Rainbow. And that one is dedicated to a haiku poet who passed away. Her name is Rachel Sutcliffe. And she also passed away pretty young from an autoimmune disease called lupus. So all the proceeds for that book is donated to a hospital university in the UK who's fighting lupus and doing research to find cures for it. Um, so there's just a few brief notes from that book, too, that I'd like to share. I feel poetry connects people in a way that other areas of life can't. In a world that far too often appears violent, disrespectful, and fragmented, we have created respectful friendships across our differences, across different countries. I think that is something special to be recognized and celebrated. This anthology is dedicated to Rachel Sutcliffe, and Haiku Nook Google Plus. Rachel was a fine haiku poet who often wrote to help cope with the devastating autoimmune disease lupus. In addition to writing honest and powerful haiku, Rachel was always supportive and shared uplifting comments in response to poems shared on Haiku Nook. Her dignity, bravery, and attitude has made her an inspiration to all of us. All proceeds will be donated to St. James University Hospital. And then just one final note, the note of anthologies. I'm currently working on another Haiku Nook international anthology. It's dedicated to the people who don't have access to clean water. I don't remember the source, but somewhere I read online that over 600 million people don't have access to clean water. And that really blew my mind that there's that many people who don't even have what a lot of us take for granted. Um, so I'm excited about the book. It's a, it's a pretty big anthology, but it's all around the theme of water in all its forms. And then all proceeds also will be um, donated to charity. So it's an exciting project and it's almost finished. So. so for somebody who might want to join a haiku community, how would they go about doing that? Uh, there's a couple options. So you could go to, if you're in the social media scene, there's a lot of groups on Facebook. If you go on Facebook and type in Haiku Nook, you can find a lot of haiku writers that way. But another option that I would recommend is going to um, the Haiku Society of America. If you live in the United States, they have a lot of groups in different cities and different states where they do what they call kukais, which are just like uh, haiku gatherings. So you can like join a regional group there, but there's also a lot of bigger haiku organizations online, also in different countries too, but the Haiku Foundation is one of the really big ones. So yeah, you can go online to type up Google the Haiku Foundation. They have a lot of resources and a lot of haiku 
because there's an intellectual side to studying Japanese poetry, and there's also a lot of sharing and collaboration. They do renge and linked verse on that site too. So yeah, the Haiku Foundation. But there's a whole list of other journals too, if you wanted to read more haiku that are well-respected and published. Most of the journals are online, and then you can also submit your own work to them too. So that's another way to share and to read. Sounds great. Is there a final poem that you think would be appropriate to end on? Mm. Or maybe we could end on a kind of a, a lighter, almost frivolous note with a poem that I found kind of stood out like a sore thumb in Echoes. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, sure. Which is uh, Final Frontier. <laughs> because in that one, it references my by far favorite of the Star Trek movies, <laughs> which I've actually seen several times that I liked it so much. I mean, it was kind of quaint in the way it's done, but there's a, so much heart in it. Yeah. <laughs> That's great, Tonio. I'm a bit of a Trekkie. So the story behind this poem, when we were coming up with themes, this was still in the beginning, eh, Jakey? When we were like coming up with different themes of what we wanted to write about and and he's yeah. just he was just tossing some ideas out there and then one email he sent me he said and these words he said a whole bunch of things but these are the only words that like stood out like bold print they weren't in bold print but it was may as well have been bold print and he said we could even write a theme on star trek because he knew that i really like star trek so yeah. i was like really seriously <laughs> So, yeah, this this was really definitely, yeah. I've had a bit of a history with Star Trek. I, I wouldn't go so far as to call myself a Trekkie, but... Uh, no, I'm not hardcore Trekkie, but I definitely, like, the OG Star Trek, like, the series, like, with William Shatner, like, I know them all. I know them all. Yeah, I so, like that one, and I like The Next Generation, and I, I like the current one, Discovery. There were a few in between that I bailed on. I'm just starting to get into Voyager only because I want to, you know, there's, it's, she's a female captain, right? Like the Enterprise has a female captain. So I'm like, I want to support that. I want to get into it because it's a female captain. I want to get on board with that. I'm just, I'm just starting to explore it, but I, I've kind of rejected it before, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to open that one up again. And <laughs> well, Discovery has that. Yes. Okay. Okay. I, I have to check that one out too. Discovery has its ups and downs, but there there are some really good elements in it. And I especially love the first episode and the first season. The first episode, I think, really raised the bar for it. And it was mm. and it was almost like there's no way they could live up to that. But uh, mm. good to just know because, just because there are two incredibly powerful women in it. Nice. I particularly like powerful women. Mm-hmm. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Me three. <laughs> well, that's good to know. I haven't gotten that far yet. So my daughter told me when they were coming out with it, I think she sent me a message and said, guess what? You know, I think she saw a billboard. She lives in Toronto. So she sent me this, you know, picture of, you know, they were advertising it. And I'm like, for real? This is for real. I've never been to a Trekkie, con like I don't go to conventions. Like I'm not like, you know, I, I'm not that 
immersed, but this is definitely the final frontier of this poem. That's where it came from, for sure. And so I'm so, like, I'm just tickled that it stood out for you like a sore thumb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I like I like the poem as well. Yeah. <laughs> if you what feel like reading it. Well, sure. What about the, the ripple effect, Tonio? Did that one stand out too? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. Because that one is more just based on humor. <laughs> but I understand too, yeah, the final frontier. So is there a particular verse in there that you'd want to finish on or do you want us to read the whole thing? Um, I think you should go all the way because there's a great line in that last verse that I think anybody who's into Star Trek will yeah. <laughs> will feel viscerally. <laughs> okay, for sure. Okay. Final Frontier. Static sound. My radio becomes a tricorder. Compounding data, the memory of a star. A black cloak hovering in space, the bird of prey. Digital eyes orbiting the Earth, Google satellites. A probe falls to whales on the brink of extinction. Spock raises an eyebrow, the sound of water on Andoria. Thank you, Tonio. It's been a lot of fun talking with you and Michelle. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. It's been wonderful talking with you. Oh, thank you. Such an honor. Thank you so much. So my guests have been Jacob Salzer and Michelle Hyatt. They are haiku poets, among many other things that they do. And if people want to read more of our work, um, you can find our Echoes book on lulu.com, and it's also on Amazon. And also, I have never been drawn to writing poetry, probably because I, as a child, I, I never felt like I could do that, or that it was safe for me to do it or to try. And in the last couple of days, I was just spontaneously inspired to, to write a bit of haiku. Oh, cool. So, that's because of you two. Oh, uh, that's beautiful. That's great. I'll send you some more resources and get you published. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great, Tony. That's so awesome. I love that. So uh, thank you again and be well. Thanks, Tony. And thanks. Peace and love. Peace and love.
best is always yet to come. That's what they explain to me. Just do your thing, you'll be king. If dogs run free.
开始，开始。好，要